You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Once again, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's episode, your usual homework and reminder, get on iTunes, leave us a rating and a review. Ratings help us out so, so much. Uh, They let us know what you guys like and don't like about the podcast. Plus, they help get the word out there about the podcast. And speaking of which, tell a friend, tell somebody you know about these great stories and these great Americans who have meant so much to our history and to our country. And have them join the Hazard Ground Podcast Nation and make sure each week they're stopping by to hear some of these great stories. Just want to take a quick second to thank all of our sponsors as they are a big part of the reason why we can do what we do. Patagonia, Blue Apron, 510, Moose Jaw, along with Hydro Flask and CSS Uncharted. We appreciate their support and we appreciate you guys supporting them as sponsors of the Hazard Ground Podcast. This week's guest is a story that I'm very excited to tell because we haven't had anybody tell it yet. It is about Operation Just Cause in Panama and Operation Acid Gambit. Uh, He is a former Army EOD Sergeant Major. He was in 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta as an SF soldier and one of the guys that one point in time told the world didn't exist, but uh, due to the war on terror, everybody kind of understands that these uh, these clandestine forces are out there. He is Steve Dawson on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Steve, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. All right, Steve. Well, the story of, of... you know, Operation Just Cause, again, I'm very excited about it because, uh, you know, that's one of those kind of military operations that gets glossed over, uh, given everything that we've been involved in over the years. And it certainly is an interesting one. I remember it as a kid. Uh, before we get to Panama, tell us how you got your start in the military. Well, I joined the military in 74 after I got out of high school. And I said, well, I'm going to join the military and do that for three years and come to, back to Bay City and do another job, and three years turned into 25. <laughs> <laughs> were, were there any other reasons? Was it like you couldn't find a job, or it was just something that you had in your family? What were the other reasons you joined? Well, there was a pretty big recession going on, right. and I wasn't uh, I wasn't bound for college at that time. That wouldn't have been a good choice for me going to college at that time. I probably would have gone to a semester and flunked out or something. So it wasn't, college wasn't for me at that time. So, uh, Jobs were kind of hard to come by in 74. It was a pretty tough recession, so I went in the military. Did you know what you wanted to do when you got in the military? Not really. I mean, I joined to be a military policeman, and I was 18 years old, and I thought, well, maybe maybe I can do three years there, and I'll be 21 when I get out, and I could become a police officer. But after being a police officer in the military, I decided, oh, that wasn't a good career for me. I, I didn't want to do that anymore. I no longer wanted to get into law enforcement. It was uh, not something I was really interested in any longer after doing it for three years. Right. Did you know why you chose the Army, or was that just the best recruiter who gave you the best spiel? Well, the funny thing is, is I went to the Marine Corps, and I said, hey, what do you guys got to offer as far as jobs and stuff? They said, we'll make you a man. we'll make you a man okay you got anything else no we'll make you a man that's all they had so (laughs) so i eliminated them pretty quickly and no desires on the navy or the air force didn't want to fly planes or anything like that no well to fly a plane to fly a jet i went to the air force and the navy said i want to fly a jet i said okay what's your college degree in well i don't have one well you got to have one of those 
So that eliminated that possibility. Okay, so basically you were stuck with the Army at that point in time. Yeah, that's right. I was stuck with the Army, yep. And they, they had all kinds of jobs. You could have done this, that, or the other thing. But at the time, they were trying to fill up the Ranger battalions. And uh, they said, why don't you join to be a Ranger? And I had no idea what, what a Ranger was at that time. And I told them I wanted to be Special Forces. And at that time, they had an age uh, limitation on you. You had to be, I think, 20 or 21. And that only lasted a short time, but I wasn't old enough to get into Special Forces. How did you know you wanted to be Special Forces? Was it like watching a movie or something like that? What gave you that kind of uh, that desire? Well, I did. Uh, I read up on Special Forces, and I knew about them. And it sounded like a really interesting career. So that that was my first choice, but uh, the recruiter, whether he was lying or not, said there was an age limit. I've talked to people subsequently, and they told me, yeah, there is. There was an age limit for a short amount of time. So uh, I just liked the way they, they got the training they got, speak another language, and uh, going to the Special Forces qualification course would have been fun, which I eventually did much later on, but not in 1974 anyway. How long did it take you to get to get to Special Forces Assessment and Selection? Well, I went in 1989. Wow, 15 years later. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> and, I mean... But... And the funny thing is, is the when I was in the unit at that time, you could serve six years in the unit, and after six years, you had to go back to your old MOS, which for me was EOD at the time, or you had to go to the Q course, and become a special forces guy or go to ranger school and become a ranger MOS. And they did that for a good reason. They didn't want you to get passed over for promotion because you were doing a job that wasn't, you know, within your MOS and people weren't going to get promoted. It, it's just, I almost forgot. Again, you, you are an EOD tech by trade originally, um, which also is another specialization in the military that's not very common. I know you said you did three years in the MPs. Did, after that, did you go right to EOD? Yeah, I went to EOD, yep, sure. Was did. that by choice? I, I was in Germany, and I re-enlisted to go to uh, EOD school, and I left Germany early to go to EOD school. Now, did you find out about that while you were in, or how did, how did that come to pass? Well, I was in Germany pulling security at a Nike Hercules missile site. I had no idea MPs did that. So mm -hmm. they sent me this missile site, and I was there for about six months, and I said, i got to find a way out of here. I was sitting in a tower watching the grass grow, and uh, I said, I can't do this any longer. So I started going through this DA pamphlet at the time that showed all the different schools, and EOD school sounded interesting, so I re-enlisted for that. And i got to ask you, pause on the career progression stuff. You were in Germany, kind of at the height of the Cold War. What was that like? Well, it was kind of weird because uh, we had... Uh, Nike Hercules nuclear missiles at the time. Right. And we had them all over Germany at the time. And, of course, they don't even exist anymore now. The Army doesn't use them anymore. But it, it was kind of an interesting time. But the best time was when you're off duty and going around seeing different parts of Germany. I really enjoyed that. Really? Now, did yeah. you? And I've been there quite a few times after that. I went there in the 80s and 90s. Uh, early 2000s, I went back there. So it's a good place to visit. All right. So when you get in the EOD community, though, a lot of people never leave. So w right. when you got to EOD, did you kind of say Special Forces was done? I, I passed that part of my career, or how did it come back full circle? Well, when I was in the EOD field, I spent uh, 
few years in the EOD field, and uh, I went to EOD school in 77, I think, and Delta was just forming up then. Right. And I heard a rumor that they wanted about five years of experience in EOD, so I waited till I had five years of experience, which turned out to be a, a totally bogus rumor. It wasn't true at all. <laughs> as long as you could make it through the selection course, you could... Uh, you could become part of Delta. So uh, eventually I went and uh, talked to another EOD guy who was my instructor at EOD school, a guy named Dennis Wolf. And he says, no, you can come to selection anytime. And I finally went to selection and finally made it. And then I was in the unit in 1982. Just out of curiosity, was EOD school back then at Edgewood Arsenal and Aberdeen Proving Grounds? Uh, or was it, it down was in Alabama? At, uh, Redstone Arsenal. Redstone Arsenal. Okay. All right. I was just curious. That was two weeks of chemical school, and then the rest of it was all at Indian Head, Maryland, which was yeah, yeah. five and a half months. Yeah. Okay. Familiar with it. All right. Uh, so you're, you're in EOD school, and you go to assessment and selection. Um, yep. You had a kind of preconceived notion of what Special Forces was. When you got to assessment and selection, were you surprised by it? Did it meet your expectations? No, it was totally, I had no idea what this was going to be like. Uh, I wasn't in the uh, Special Forces or the Rangers who kind of, they had a bunch of people that went and they would talk about it. Well, I was in the dark when I went there. But uh, when they told us, they sent me a pamphlet or a piece of paper that told, told you what the selection course was like. And they said you had to walk. Seven and a half to 40 miles a day carrying a 40 to 55 pound rucksack along with eight to 10 pound weapon. And, uh, you're going against an unknown time standard when you're walking from point to point. It just seemed really strange to me. But of course, later on, I figured out that's a great selection course and it really does work real well at picking the right people anyway. Did you ever think you made the wrong decision? No, once I got in the unit, that was the best job I've ever had. I'll never have another job like that. No, no, I, I mean like when you were going through assessment and selection, you had all these things you didn't know. Did you ever think like, whoa, I got in over my head? Oh, yeah, I thought that, yeah, a couple of times. Yeah, you think that, but, uh, you know, you kind of get through that, I guess. Mental toughness is no. part of what that's about. Back then, you said that Delta was just being formed. I mean, now, um, you know, obviously... Some of this stuff is still, you know, uh, sensitive information, so to speak. But, um, you know, Delta is like a, a different subset of, of special forces. Was it back then or was it just a different unit? Like, did you have to go through extra training to, to be qualified for Delta back then or no? Yeah. After you finished the assessment and selection course within, I think it was a month and a half, uh, I made it through the fall course of 82 and I reported to the unit in November of 82. So I was, uh, they had a counterintelligence guy to come for, he came to Fort McClellan where I was at. Mm -hmm. And he said, if you have any problem clearing, just let me know and we'll get you out of here as quick as you could. I, I cleared Fort McClellan in just a couple of days. Wow. And once I got there, uh, that it was great training. It was six months of great training through the, uh, operator training course. It was really good training. Uh, and I'm sure it's even better today. Steve, when you had gone through this, you had already been in the military for 15 years. Were you the oldest guy in the class or on your team or whatever when you got there? No. No, I joined in 74, and I went to selection in 82. 
82. I'm sorry. I thought you said 89. I apologize. Okay. No. So you had, yeah, eight, 82. You, had, you had eight years in at that time? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you get to Delta and you start, you know, doing all these missions and everything else. And you're kind of uh, into that mode. Kind of set the scene for me a little bit about, you know, the operational tempo, some of the things that you were asked to do and places you may have gone to travel for the job. Well, we traveled all over. We did all kinds of different types of training. Uh, we did jungle training. And, of course, you can just imagine where you went, Panama, Guatemala, Thailand. And then we did uh, desert mobility training, and that was done normally out west in the United States, out at the Nevada test site or some huge government facility. We can just drive for miles and get to know the desert. We went overseas to Jordan did desert training over there and then you did winter training but a lot of it was a lot of shooting and a lot of physical training pt as the army calls it did um did because we were at relative peacetime did, did i mean were the things that you're doing just more training focused as opposed to operations focused yeah almost all training missions were few and far between at that time i mean we went on some and and a lot of them were uh, just a small group of people that went on some special missions. But nothing nothing big like you see today. No, we had no Afghanistan, no Iraq that lasted as long as this one has. Yeah. So missions were, you know, pretty pretty hard to come by then. All right, well, Just Cause isn't until 89, so it's seven years from when you get into special forces before you guys end up in Panama. Do you recall how many actual, could you, you know, give a guesstimate number of how many actual other real missions you had in that time in those seven years? Well, I think just about the entire unit went to Grenada. That was October of 83. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So you went there and then, uh, missions, um, one, two, three, I went on three missions uh, working in an embassy that I really don't want to talk about, but we, we did that. A lot of guys did that. Went to different embassies throughout the world, the hotspots and the embassies. Uh, and then uh, most of the other missions were pretty sensitive, and uh, it was a small group of people that did it. Right. So that's kind of the way that went. Did you ever but think... But the ones that made the press, they were very... Uh, other than Grenada, I... Uh, can't think of one uh we went down to the atlanta prison when uh the atlanta prison riots i can't remember when that was but yeah it was in the 80s president reagan was the uh president and uh as soon as we got to atlanta it hit the press that delta was down there and 90 some percent of us turned around and left the next day really <laughs> so you guys stayed there yep now was that because it made the press at that point in time yeah because it made the press yep See, and it's so different now. Like, I mean, when you look back on it, you know, you had nearly 30 years in the military, and now it's just the idea of special operations is so commonplace, right? It's like, oh, you know, send in the Green Berets or send in the Navy SEALs. And, you know, these were, yeah. like, as, as I said earlier, they were clandestine forces back then that weren't really talked about. Now it's movies, it's books, it's interviews, it's all these things. When you, when you see that happen, does it, you know, does it bother you at all? Well... It, uh, a little bit, but, you know, special forces and uh, most SEALs, I mean, that's 
open to the public. There's nothing really hidden about that, really. So the people that write the books and say things they shouldn't say, that, that bothers me a little bit. But, sure. You know, you're always going to get some of them, and there's just really nothing you can do about it. Yeah, I'm I mean, aware of anyway. It's one of those things where it's just like there's such a, a, a unwritten code that you guys live by, right? I mean, there's, there's such a, a, a brotherhood that you guys have joined, and it's almost like they break ranks, right? Yeah, that's kind of what they did. And most of them are now PNG from the unit or persona non grata. <laughs> right, yeah, sure. Okay, so let's get to Panama. Uh, I was a young kid, and I, I remember the name Manuel Noriega very well. Um, because it was yeah. all over the news, like it was all over, and I just remember being around Christmas time. That was the other reason why I think it was, it was big news. But it was one of those things where I, I guess, from a young civilian perspective, it just it burst out there like nobody knew it was coming. Almost in the same sense, the way uh, what happened to Mogadishu did. Like we didn't know about it until after it, was, it had already started. And so right. you guys obviously had a little bit of advance notice that all this stuff was going on. Can you remember and take me through? what you were told prior to going, what the mission was, and, and the expectations, things of that nature? Well, uh, we were uh, rehearsing for that thing, but for me, and a, just a bad stroke of luck, uh, you remember I told you in 89 I had to go to the Q course or go to Ranger School, one of the two, or leave the unit for a year. Right. So I chose to go to the Q course, and that happened to be in 89. And we knew that everybody was training up for this thing, and they're rehearsing and everything. So I was in the Q course at the time. And I think I finished in September. I don't really remember, but I think it was something like September. Of course, the Panama invasion happened in December. And we had, I think, uh, six guys from the unit in the Q course at that time. So uh, what we used to do is we used to take turns losing our ID cards so we could go back to the unit and get a new ID card made and asked them what was going on and then they'd come back the guys would come back from losing their id card <laughs> yeah the cadre knew exactly what was going on but there really wasn't much they could do about it so they just you know they just kind of said okay yeah who's going to lose their id card next month you know so they, they just kind of made a joke about it but so you had had an idea of what was going on like just hearing that you guys may be leaving and things of that nature correct yeah yeah and we were all working to get out of the Q course. You know, we're talking to our chain of command. Hey, get us out of the Q course. This thing goes. We don't want to be in training. We want to go down there and do this thing. And the unit probably would have gotten us out, but who knows. So when do you actually arrive in Panama? Well, we did rehearsals down there before the uh, real thing actually happened. Okay. And uh, a funny thing that uh, Kurt Muse's wife was a... Uh, DOD school teacher down there in Panama. Oh, really? Yep. And the school she taught at, uh, we rehearsed on that building. In fact, we uh, crashed a helicopter on top of that building, rehearsing for the mission to rescue her husband, which was kind of kind of really strange. <laughs> and, and for those people who listening who aren't familiar with Just Cause, you know, most of that revolved around Kurt Muse, as you just mentioned, that was her husband, um, the single American citizen who basically, you know, it, it, would have, it was a death sentence if they didn't go and get him, like he was going to be killed. And so this was kind of, for lack of a better term, you know, this is one of those kind of snatch and grab operations, go in, get a guy and get the heck out as quick as possible. So um, you had been training down there. Did you get a sense while you were training that things were escalating to a point where action was inevitable? 
Well, we we weren't privy. We didn't get much information much faster than the news media got. Really? I mean, yeah, we might have got something like hours before it hit the news. You know, if something happened at 10 in the morning, we'd hear about it almost immediately. But, you know, the 5.30, 6 o'clock news, whenever the news came on, uh, you know, just hours later, they'd report it, you know, especially when they were uh, uh, when they uh, hassled that Navy guy and his wife. You know, that made the news, but we didn't we didn't find out extra earlier than the news media did. Were you aware of of Kurt Muse's situation at all or did you not even hear anything about that? Kurt Muse was actually a dual citizen. He had citizenship in the United States and in Panama. His parents started like a printing business down there in Panama and Kurt took that business over. So his business was uh, the printing business. And, of course, when you're kind of raised down there in Panama and you go to school in Panama, he spoke fluent Spanish. And, of course, all his friends, or most of his friends, were Panamanian. So they knew what was what direction the country's going towards. And, uh, you know, Noriega as a dictator, as a harsh dictator. So he got together with his uh, Panamanian friends and kind of took over the radio station when Noriega would give a weekly address. Right. He would talk to the people on the radio. Well, these guys figured out a way to kind of take over his radio address and say, this guy's a terrible guy. We got to get rid of this guy, blah, blah, blah. So he did that kind of on his own with his Panamanian friends, but he was in the printing business. But he was detained, you know, according to reports, that he was detained at the airport just because he was an American, correct? Well, they found out that it was him, and they had a, I don't know if they called an APB, but they had something like that. Noriega found out it was him, and they said, hey, let's grab that guy. So they grabbed him at the airport when he flew in from uh, Miami, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So they, they captured so, him and, and began you know an interrogation process, and as you said, Noriega had known that he was doing like these piracy broadcasts and whatnot. Right, Exactly. So he was thrown into the uh, the prison right away, and I'm not sure that he ever left there until we uh, rescued him, I don't think. I just think he was uh, stuck there the whole time, Mark. I don't think he ever got out of that place once he was incarcerated. Now, as far as your guys' training, it's up there. When do you get the news that, hey, you have to go get Kurt Muse? Well, it was months and months before December of 89. I want to say it was five, maybe six months before that. So we started training for it. So that's how long Muse was in, in, in captivity, so to speak? I think he was in captivity uh, close to nine months, I really? think. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I don't think we started training as soon as he was captured. I think it, it took a while before we started training up uh, for that. It might have taken a month or two. But my my recollection is... We started training up five to six months before we rescued him in December. Now, when you talk about training, was it specifically to go get a prisoner out, or was it just training for any kind of operations that may happen? Well, we had to do normal training that we, you know, that we had to do for the worldwide mission, for other hostage rescue missions. But we spent a lot of time uh, on the Kurt Muse rescue, rehearsing just for that mission. Yeah. Did you know? 
what you were really up against when it when it came to not only the, the rescue itself, but as far as the combatants you'd be facing. Yeah, yeah, we were pretty comfortable with uh, what we were doing. We uh, we actually had a, a prison, not the entire prison, but parts of it that were important to us, replicated down in Florida. So down at Eglin Air Force Base, uh, we had a small, the engineers from our unit built a prison down there, or a small part of it, the part we were going to be concerned with. And they built it down there in Florida, and we rehearsed on that uh, quite a few times, as a matter of fact. In addition to rehearsing in Panama, we rehearsed in uh, Florida and also at, you know, Fort Bragg. So the president, President Bush at this time, George H.W. Bush, the father, uh, you know, is getting reports that, you know, people are being tortured and everything else. And uh, at this, I guess it was it a prison, Carcel Modelo is, I mean, was that technically yeah. a jail? Um, and, and so, you know, as you mentioned, Muse was in, in captivity over nine months. Reports are that he had lost like over 50 pounds of body weight. And the president makes the decision that he's going to go be rescued. Uh, yeah. When you f- hear this, when you guys get the notification, how quickly do you start going into actual action? Well, uh, we had uh, bases down in Panama at that time. So there were a lot of U.S. Army bases down there. Uh, we had airports, airfields, military, uh, regular Army bases. So we'd go down there almost at will because we still had an agreement with Panama that we could you know, uh, work down there and train down there. So... We had been going down there forever, but uh, if I remember right, uh, there were four officers harassed on the 16th of December, and I don't remember what type of officers these were, Navy or Army, I don't remember. But on the 16th of December, they were harassed, and one of them got killed. Uh, and an officer and his wife witnessed part of this, and they're harassed. And I think that's what pushed Bush over the edge. You know, when he heard about those guys harassing that uh I think it was a Navy guy's wife. I mean, I think he said, okay, that's enough. That's it. And I think that was around the 16th. And of course, the thing happened on the 20th. All right. So such begins Operation Asset Gambit, which is, you know, within Operation Just Cause. Uh, can you kind right. of give us the the overview of how the mission was going to be accomplished? Well, uh, we were supposed to take uh, little helicopters and land on the roof at the uh, prison and that's exactly what we did and we were going to start from the top and fight our way down to his cell and i can't remember if we had to go down two or three floors but it wasn't very far to get to his cell and we didn't have to go far going down the steps to get to his cell either in other words you know when you there was a cupola on top of the prison and uh we landed with the helicopters on top of the prison explosively breached that door to the prison and then went down, I want to say two stories. It might've been three, but we went down two or three stories and hung a left and his, his cell was uh, right there. It wasn't very far from the stairwell. We had to go down. How much resistance so, did you meet? Uh, very little at all. I mean, there was, uh, what happened is they thought we were going to come from the ground floor. So they took everybody and sent them down to the ground. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> when they knew the invasion was coming, they were down there. So the only person that got killed in the prison was the guy assigned to kill Kurt Hughes, one of the security guards. Oh. 
Well, there was a uh, there was another guy who was walking around with a clipboard and a pencil. He must have been inventorying prisoners or equipment or something. But that guy was so scared and petrified, he literally shit his pants. <laughs> yeah, he did. And of course, we didn't shoot that guy because he wasn't armed. But the other guy was killed. But all the uh, all the rest of the stuff happened on the roof of the prison because everybody else was down at the ground floor. And when we landed, those guys on the roof, they were just killing everybody. But I wasn't on the roof. I was one of the guys that went inside the prison. And, and so you guys came back out the way you went in? You went back to the roof yep. and left on helicopters? Yep, that's exactly what happened, yeah. Uh, it's always funny. I mean, it seems like the mission went off pretty effortless, effortlessly and went to plan. It's so rare that that happens. Yeah, everything worked out pretty good. Uh, we were really concerned about the weight on the little birds. And, you know, when you have three or four guys on a little bird, it's not a big deal. But we had five and six on a little bird, and that's a pretty big deal. Uh, we weighed ourselves. Uh, we were overweight, so we had to drop helmets. We dropped the plates out of our uh, Kevlar vests. We had to do what we could to cut weight, so... We took some uh, a little bit of risk there, but it, it worked out fine. So going down there to get him, that worked out fine. Uh, we went down there. It's funny, Kurt likes to tell the story about how he heard this loud boom, this explosion go off. And next thing you know, this guy in a dark suit was uh, looking at him and he was a Delta operator. Well, there was no explosion. We didn't, you know, his, his cell was entered by using bolt cutters and cutting a lock off to get inside his cell. So there was no explosion. There was an explosion to get us inside the cupola, inside the prison, but other than that, there weren't any more. So you, that was kind of funny. Do you remember, like, the look on Kurt's face when he saw you guys? Yeah. He, he looked like he was uh, pretty surprised throughout the entire endeavor. Uh, he had no clue we were coming to get him. He had absolutely no idea. I mean, he's certainly a grateful guy. He he calls every December 20th. He calls everybody he can figure out that was related to his rescue, and he calls him and thanks him every December 20th. Really? Fear. Yep. So every December 20th, you get a phone call from Kurt Muse? Yep. That's amazing. What's yeah. the, what's the conversation like 30 years later? Well, you know, he's got, he's probably, I don't know how many people he calls, 10, 15, 20, I really don't know, but. You know, it's usually a quick phone call. Uh, I really want to thank you, my family. It's been 25 years or whatever the number of years is, and I want to thank you. And You know, it's a, it's a pretty quick call, and, you know, he's just a grateful guy for what happened. So it's kind of – he's a great American with a long memory of what his country did for him. So he's a good guy. Did that kind of – I don't know if validates the right word because I don't think anybody does our line of work for validation per se, but what do you feel after, you know, that, that, that phone call, especially after, you know, after all these years? Well, you know, when December 19th rolls around, I don't think that, okay, tomorrow's the day we got, I don't even think of that. <laughs> so when December 20th call, he calls earlier and earlier every year. <laughs> I think he called at eight o'clock in the morning one time. And, uh, <laughs> And I don't even think of it till I look at my phone and go, this is Kurt Mews' call. Oh, okay, yeah, it's, it must be December 20th, and yep, it sure is. So it's it's just kind of, he's a good reminder that, yep, we did this X number of years ago. 
I guess it's going to be 30 next year. Yeah, right? next year it'll be 30 years. That's what I said. I mean, look, you know, you guys were the first American counterterrorist team to ever rescue an American hostage uh, from an enemy. And that sounds crazy to say, you know, given everything that's gone on now. But when when you put it in that context, um, does it seem a bigger deal than what it was? You know, I don't know, because compared to what they're doing today, I mean, they, they got mission after mission after mission. I mean, right. they're out doing all kinds of stuff today. And for us, it was just few and far between. So uh, it's, it's kind of like that, if that makes any sense to you. No, sure. It's, it certainly does. Now, uh, that didn't end the operation in Panama once Kurt Muse was rescued. Did you stay there for the rest of it or no? Yeah, we stayed there. Uh, we got to spend Christmas and New Year's there. <laughs> it wasn't my best Christmas and New Year's, but, you know, it was good. <laughs> we were busy, so uh, I, I don't know if you recall this, Mark, but, you know, you, you said uh, Just Cause, that's the overall mission, right? Right. Well, Nifty Package was what they called the uh, mission to capture Noriega. Yeah, well, that's where I was going. I didn't know if you were part of that or not. Yeah, yeah, we were. That was that was another Delta mission to capture Noriega. If I recall uh, correctly, he ended up bunkering down in a church, right? Not actually a church of Papal Nuncia, which is kind of like an embassy for the Catholic Church, if you will. I just remember the big consternation being that we wouldn't fire on the building or attack the building because it was seen as a religious symbol, and we don't attack religious buildings as Americans. Well, it, it was... Uh, I don't know that it's officially called an embassy, but it's it's kind of embassy-like. Right. So I'll, I'll tell you what's really funny. Uh, going way back, way back in history... Uh, there was a guy named Andara that ran uh, in in May of '89. Uh, he was actually elected. He beat Noriega's guy by a margin of like three to one in the election. Mm-hmm. Well, Noriega tells the digging battalion to go assault the winner, which was Andara. And Andara goes into hiding where at the Papal Nuncia. He went into hiding at the Papal Nuncia. Wow! And that was in May. I think it was May of 89. Now, flash forward, January of 90, guess who's hiding in the Papal Nuncia? Yeah, Manuel Noriega. <laughs> yeah, the same guy that he had the dignity telling go beat him up because he won the election. You probably don't remember this, but there were pictures of his bloody face in the in the news and the newspaper and everything. He physically was beaten up by the big dignity battalion. I mean, physically beaten up. His face was bloodied, and that was, that was on the news pretty uh, prominently. He ended up surrendering, right? Yeah, he did, yep. So he went into the Papal Nuncia in hiding, and General Thurman at the time said the only guys that would guard that Papal Nuncia would be Delta. So we got stuck, and we rotated. You know, you'd work a, I don't know, I can't remember, was it an 8- or 12-hour shift or whatever, or you'd work a few days, I don't remember, but then some other squadron would come in from the unit and stand guard there. <laughs> it was funny. You know, you guys, reports are at least that you had that perimeter and you basically started playing loud rock music. You made a helicopter landing zone right nearby to try to force them out. Um, yeah. What other, were those the only other things that you did? I mean, you know, this guy's hunkered down knowing he's surrounded by what he considers the enemy as far as Americans is concerned. Um, but what else kind of were you guys doing for the, the 10 days he was hiding there? Well, that, that really wasn't us. 
I, I don't know that we instigated that. There was a PSYOPs unit down in Panama, and uh, I don't know if it was Thurman or who. Somebody decided to do that, and I, I don't remember who was the uh, chief of staff of the Army, but some big shot called up and said, hey, can you turn that stuff off? <laughs> so they, they they didn't play that music for a long long time. <laughs> yeah, they said, "Can you turn that stuff off?" Because we're you're kind of screwing with an embassy, right? That is too funny. That is unreal that yeah. that happens. That's a, one of those little moments of levity. Um, but yeah. was there any talk of you guys actually infiltrating the building? No, no. Okay. But we had we had emergency assault plans ready, so. If something happened, there was a signal. If he put up some flag, if somebody put up a flag in a certain window, we'd do an emergency assault. But that never happened. But we we weren't going to assault uh, an embassy in a in a country. Uh, you know, it, it's essentially if it's looked at as an embassy, that was uh, sovereign soil for the Vatican. So right. we really we didn't want to create an international incident and. So we only had emergency assault plans, and, of course, they never came to fruition. He eventually just gave up, gave up to us, and then uh, he was handed over to, a, I want to say, the DEA. Yes. Um, There's pictures of him getting on an aircraft with a guy with a DEA shirt on. Yep, that is correct. Uh, in all the time in Panama, did, did things ever get, like, tense to the point where you got nervous or scared, or did it all become routine because you had been there so long? I'll tell you one of the scariest things in Panama is we didn't wear uh, conventional uniforms. Right. And there were a lot of people down in Panama. The 82nd was down there. So we're we're flying into places on uh, UH-60s, fast roping into places, looking for uh, Oriega. Anytime there was a hint that he might be at some location, somebody flew over there and, you know, and checked it out. Well... You're on the ground now, and if the 82nd comes by and sees you guys in a goofy uniform, they might fire you up. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember a couple of times we hid in the ditches when they came by. Not that they're a bad unit, but, you know, we had different uniforms, and we say, hey, man, we, we got to – and that was a lesson learned for us. You know, if you're going to go fight uh, with the conventional army and they're going to be around, you might want to be in their uniform, which we typically weren't. It's interesting. Uh, I mean, I – be- I, I've been, you know, I've served, deployed with Special Forces guys, and, and they always wore the same uniform. I just considered it routine. I didn't know that it came from a place where it was one of those things where it, it became a matter of safety and friendly fire. Yeah, yeah. We wore, uh, we had flight suits that were dyed black. That was our normal assault uniform. Black baklava, a fireproof black suit, black everything was black. Or we wore a flight suit, or we wore a different uh, type of uh, OG-107 fatigues. So we weren't dressed like the regular Army was. And that was a lesson learned for us that, hey, if you're going to be around the regular Army, you might want to dress like them. There's potential for friendly fire. You know, Steve, just a a couple of questions on kind of like the tactical nature of things. And, you know, for the civilians listening, I don't want to get too deep into it. But you just mentioned that... Uh, you know, you had made several tents where you thought Noriega was going to be in fast roping. Was the intelligence back then, uh, I mean, I don't want to say it was bad, but we just do intelligence so much different now, right? Like actionable things are, are, are different and we have verifiable data and, you know, we have intel analysts all over the place to figure this stuff out. You just, you didn't have that robust intelligence force back then, did you? No, I don't think so, Mark. I mean, you got to remember as soon as 9-11 happened, 
you know, we started hiring all kinds of intelligence people. The, uh, the number of intel people in the Army skyrocketed. The number of contractors skyrocketed. GS positions skyrocketed. That didn't, uh, that didn't exist back then. I mean, yeah, we had intelligence people, and, and they were good, but just not in the numbers that we have today. So it's, it's quite a bit different. I would have to agree with you. That's, that's kind of the way it is. I mean, we got a lot more intelligence people now, and they can look into a lot more things. And uh, I think it's much better today than it was back in 89. Did it ever frustrate you that you would go on these kind of, you know, supposed hits and, and try to find somebody and keep coming up empty? I mean, at some point in time, did you ever think like, you know, I'm putting my, my life on the line here to take chances based off of really shoddy information? No, no, I don't think that entered too many people's mind. I think, you know, hey, this is the... This is the job you asked for. You volunteered for this job, so if you don't want to do this, go find a different job. You know, so I don't <laughs> think people had that attitude, Mark. Okay, I not mean, yeah, even I mean, though it was dangerous, right. even though it was, uh, you know, maybe not the uh, the best situation to be in. I don't, I don't think people had that attitude. You know, I think people were pretty positive about things then back in the year. I think they still are today, probably. Kind of fast forward a little bit because, you know, Noriega gets captured in early 1990. Now you get out in 1999. Uh, you had had over 20 years, so clearly you could have left when you want. How did you know it was time for you to be done? Well, you know, at the unit there, you, you got to move up. And uh, I wasn't I wasn't going to be a, a command sergeant major. I couldn't make command sergeant major for whatever reason. I just wouldn't get selected to be a command sergeant major, so... I could have stayed at the unit moving around and grabbing all these other jobs, but it didn't seem right to me that some other guy who could make CSM, I was going to steal his job for a while because I wanted to hang out longer. So I just said, hey, I'm not going to do that. And it was a good time for me to go after 25 years. I was there 17, had a lot of fun for 17 years. I learned a lot. They taught me a lot. And yeah, I, I, you know, it's kind of mixed emotions. I didn't want to leave, but I knew I had to, so... I just kind of left. Forgive kind of the weird nature of this question, but knowing the environment you operated in for a better part of your career, I know you'll understand it. When you look back on it, uh, you know, all these years later, and you get out in 99, and, you know, less than 18 months later, unfortunately, 9-11 happens, that would have given you an opportunity to do a lot more things throughout your career that you trained for. Uh, do, do you kind of look back and go, hey, I, I wish I would have had some of those opportunities post 9-11? Well, not really, because I'm a sergeant major at the time, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> sergeant majors, I mean, they're, they're pushing paper. Yeah, you're not kicking doors down. Training and Yeah, so you're not going to be going out there doing the good stuff. I mean, uh, that's the team members and the team leaders, and maybe the troop sergeant major gets to do some of that, but certainly not a squadron sergeant major or anybody above that. And I had already done all that, so I wasn't going to get to do the things I would have liked to have done. And, you know, I'm in my 40s at the time, too. And, sure. You know, you're just not as fast and as sharp as you were when you were in your 20s and 30s. Yeah, and we all know that feeling. Trust me. Um, <laughs> when, you, <laughs> when you look back at your career, uh, do you wish things had gone in a different order? Not regret, just, you know, if you can go back, would you have changed anything? Yeah, I would have gone to Delta sooner. I wouldn't have uh, – I would have tried to get a hold of somebody sooner and talk to him sooner instead of waiting five years in the EOD field. I, that's the only thing I wish I would have done, gotten there sooner. 
When you see nowadays all that Delta and Special Forces are capable of, is there a sense of pride that you were there in the earlier stages to help grow that? Yeah, yeah, sure is. And, you know, we get to go back there and see the guys. Of course, they don't talk about the missions they're doing, but we see the guys and talk to them, and they'll take us in their team room, and it's just amazing how uh, humble the guys are and, uh, even even after doing all these missions and doing all this stuff, they're just humble guys and they're great guys, and it's really uh, really nice to see that they they have a still have a great selection and great training process, and they still have a great organization. Yeah, I mean it, it's uh, obviously one of the finest in the world, but you know the army as as an organization uh, takes a, a lot of pride in being able to have you know, a group of elite soldiers like the Rangers, and then you kick it up a notch, and you go in SF, and you kick it up a notch and more, and you go in a Delta. I mean, we just keep finding new barriers to break down. Yeah, and a lot of people do that. They go from the Rangers to SF to Delta. That's uh, a lot of people do that. So that's, uh, it's good. I mean, those guys get great training in the Rangers, great training in Special Forces, and great training in Delta. So it's a, it's a good way to go. Well, Steve, look, it was an amazing career. Uh, I love this story. We have yet to been able to tell Operation Just Cause and Operation Acid Gambit, so it's certainly one of the ones on our hit list. I know our audience certainly enjoyed it. But, you know, it's just a pleasure speaking to you. I, I, I thank you so much for your time and your honesty and, and certainly uh, being so candid with us and sharing all these amazing tales of, of the things that you've done and accomplished. And we just uh, we appreciate your time here on The Hazard Ground. All right, Mark. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.